Hello, and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an indie record label. I know from a lot of the people that um, have written in um, to the show, there's a lot of people who are actually not yet running a record label, but are thinking or dreaming about starting a record label. I love that. Even talk to one person who's guinea-pigging their own band uh, their own project as the first release and i love that that makes a lot of sense if if you are in the process of starting a record label or currently run a record label we have a free guide for independent labels um, and you can get that at otherrecordlabels.com basically um, we've condensed a lot of the information and wisdom from these past interviews and put it in this free guide which you can get from otherrecordlabels.com Today is a very exciting episode. We have Mike Park, who is the owner and founder and an artist on the label Asian Man Records, a label that is run out of his mom's garage for the past 25 years. Uh, What an honor to talk with Mike today. I know so many of our listeners are going to be stoked to hear this interview, and uh, hopefully we're welcoming some new listeners to the show. And I want to give a shout out to my buddy Cam, who I hope is finally listening to the show. Thanks so much for doing this, Mike. It is such a huge honor to get a chance to talk with you today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm I'm stoked to do it. Do you have uh, Do you have plans for a thirtieth? Like, are you coming up on a thirtieth, or or have you hit that already? We're coming up on twenty five. Oh, 25. Okay. Twenty five will be next. Okay, this May is twenty four. Then the following May. Okay, I must. There was something about you guys putting doing something in 1990 is that wrong we the asian man started in 96 may of 96 so oh, I, was, I see i had uh a label called dill records right okay maybe that's the confusion so that would be actually yeah 1990 okay so this is like uh almost this is, you, you can you could technically say a 30th of being in the business at least Yes. Yeah, that's putting, great. Putting out my first record. Yes. So 1996, and was that whole time? I, I, I've, I, it's kind of infamous that you've run things out of your parents' garage. Is that true? Yeah, still here. I'm sitting here right now. It's super. The problem with the garage, it's kind of slanted, so it goes underground a little bit. So it's <laughs> okay. It's a basement. Feel, oh like, yeah, yeah. With temperature-wise, so I'm just I'm freezing. Oh man. <laughs> have you been and you've been that way for 20 25 years yeah it's great during the summer because it stays cool and it's oh awesome. i see yeah yeah but the winters are freezing and like you must have intentionally kept things small and modest instead of you know growing to like a, an office building with 100 people 100 percent. i don't see the fun in doing that really there's no there's, <laughs> that seems like a headache <laughs> yeah i agree is it just you or do you have interns do you have help i have one guy that comes in three times a week for three hours a day mm. and then i have what i'll do if i need help i usually post something on social media saying can anybody come help pack records oh my and gosh it never fails we'll get like a crew of five people will come in oh wow and you can pay them in records Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read somewhere. So let's go back to the beginning. I, I I read somewhere, and this maybe was the the time of Dill, but like that that you saw other bands or or people from other bands were starting their own labels, and it looked easy, and and you wanted to 
So you wanted to do the same thing. Is that true? Yeah, it wasn't something that looked easy. It it just was the reality that it could be done. So if you're looking back in the 80s, um, early 90s, in, in particular, I was looking at Discord. Okay, yeah. And I was very... And and still am very influenced by the philosophy of Ian Mackay and just kind of that almost fanaticism of Fugazi and doing mm-hmm. the all age shows and and uh, not selling merch even though I sold merch right. but like the five dollar doors it was crazy hmm. they they would play really big venues for five dollars and. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so were were these like were these labels kind of demystifying things for you? I mean, I imagine that there w- obviously wouldn't have been as many DIY labels as there are today. Yeah, it was uh, the connection of musician and label. So you right. had Ian and Discord. You had Greg Ginn and SST. You had Brett Gerowitz, Epitaph. Even right. Fat Mike was just just started Fat Records. Oh, okay. Um, even Larry Livermore with with Lookout, he was in the Lookouts, hmm. so he was in a band, but became successful through his label. So I just saw that correlation of you don't really have to uh, wait for someone else to dictate your future. And I even think I saw like the MC Hammer behind the music, yeah, and he was talking about being offered a major label deal early on. He's like, yeah, he kind of crunched the numbers. He's like this is a terrible deal. I, I could just sell more doing it myself. Wow. Early on, I was like, I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I can do this myself too. <laughs> I think MC Hammer went bankrupt though. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's when he became successful. He, yeah. he, he got crazy. He got crazy. Taco Bell ads. Uh, um, so, so, okay. So let me ask you then. So you're, you're thinking you're, of starting a label and, and you see that correlation of being, cause you were in bands right at the time. Yeah. And, and, but I mean, that's not, that's not hugely common. I mean, most artists, most creative types don't have that entrepreneurial spirit. So where did that come from? Uh, I still don't know if I have that. I just felt like I had a good, I had good taste in music. Like I could, mm. we would tour so I'm talking specifically Skanga Pickle, which toured heavily from 89 to 96. Okay. So it was like, what a great opportunity to find bands. You would tour and you'd play Gainesville, Florida. And the opening band is this small band called Less Than Jake. <laughs> and I would go, wow, this band's really good. And yeah. you end up putting out that record. And then you go to Chicago and you meet this these teenagers named in a band called slapstick yeah put out their record it was i had the ability where the other members in the band because it was a collective at first even though i did all the work because it's a i think in every band you have one guy that's kind of in charge of the business Mm. that's what seems to be the common thread and that was my case i see yeah nowadays it's like the one guy who does their social media yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, the one guy who could write letters or send emails or whatever. Oh, that's exactly. interesting. But I mean, uh, inevitably, if you're starting a label and if things get going, your music has to take a back seat. Was that the case? That was the case. So we had actually, it was, a, it was May of 96. I remember it clearly. We had just played a show. 
and I told the band, I said, I can't do this. I was pretty burnt out from touring because we were averaging around 200 shows a year. Wow. And this was no manager, no record label. This was just doing it ourselves. Wow. And I was burnt out. And I said, I'd like to take a break. But we were <laughs> starting to do really well. And so I said, if you want to continue without me, I go, you know, that's, I totally understand in, in my mind thinking there's no way they can do it without me because <laughs> I, I was the main singer. <laughs> and, but then the next day we, uh, we had a show in Santa Barbara, California. And I, I, I drove separately. And when they arrived, they, they said, we're going to keep going. I mm. said, okay. And then that's when I decided to start Asian man that day is because we, we had the collective with the band called Dill records. And then right when that happened on my drive home, Asian man was starting in my mind. Oh, that's amazing. What a, what a great, uh, what a great moment that that's still fresh in your memory. Very fresh. <laughs> uh, and so what, I mean, you were in this, like what kind of drew you to this? Cause like, obviously like punk and ska has been kind of the foundation uh, genre wise. Like what drew you to that? Uh, was it the community? Was it just teenage angst? Was it the music? Yeah, I think it's a combination of teenage angst and the music. Yeah. I was so <clears throat> I caught the tail end of the two tone movement from from England. Okay, so I was able to see some of the bands on their last tours in their original formation, like Madness, okay, uh, Bad Manners, the Specials, and then then it was over. Hmm. They stopped touring, and so. This third wave was starting with the bands like the Toasters, Fishbone, the Untouchables. And we had a great local band here called the Uptones. And I I just got obsessed with ska. I was so into the, the music, the dancing, mm. the fashion. Um, I was very much in like everything had to be authentic. Like my suits had to be from the sixties. Yeah. My ties. I mean, it couldn't be just a skinny tie. The tie had to be from the sixties. I was really meticulous. Oh, wow. Um, sorry. This is mid, is this, what are we talking here? Mid nineties, early nineties? Uh, I would say this is, this is in the eighties. Oh, okay. Like, oh, okay. Uh, so 85, 86, when I started getting into like like rude boy ska fashion wow. um and then heavily influenced by the two-tone bands look mm. um and in particular the specials and then um yeah i just i loved it i loved going to shows and just you know you're young i was probably 16 and it was just fun it's fun go especially fishbone fishbone was just such a good live band right. um and they were young too even though they were on a major label they they're only a few years older than me, so. So I, I mean, I associate ska. I mean, I, I was in high school in the in the mid to late '90s, and so I mean, there was, you know, maybe that was the tail end. But I, I associate ska with California. But is the origins in UK or what's the what's the deal? Origins are in Jamaica, actually. So okay. So the Godfathers of ska is Bob Marley. Bob Marley wow. and the Whaler, the Whalers, to the and the Scottalites. The Scottalites right. are the Godfathers of, of okay. the. Okay. Of the sound of Rocksteady and Ska and Bluebeat. And, and so if you wow. look at any of the old recordings of Bob Marley, the backing band are the Scottalites. Wow. No way. And they, so that's they were the backing from. band for everybody. So um, 
It's 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 uh it's pretty cool. You can hear that distinct sound. The the drummer's this guy named yes. Lloyd Lloyd uh, Nibs. He invented that one drop, and so it's a very distinct sound. Um, and just the it's such a cool sound. <laughs> I, I one of my favorite beats. That's so interesting that um you know I've been reading a little bit about the history of hip hop and and how it it goes back to the to Bob Marley and to Jamaica. And um, it's interesting how hip hop and ska kind of went off in two different directions, but came from the same area. I had no idea that that hip hop claimed some influences from Jamaica. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so can, let me ask you about ska because I mean it holds a special place in my heart from from the '90s, and um, and I wasn't all in like you were, but I definitely loved it. I I, I um, and and I'm kind of curious as where where it's at today and like. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. Obviously, it, it it didn't die, but it feels like it was one of these genres that, um, like essentially disappeared. Certainly from the mainstream. Um, was it like so distinctly tied to an era? I mean, has it disappeared, or is it alive and well? And I'm just totally wrong. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty big right now. It's it's always it always did well on the underground. So the problem was when when the major and I feel like this happens all the times when, when yes major labels take over a sound. So they just went on a signing spree. <laughs> right. So it was, I mean, let's think of the bands that were signed. No doubt. Mighty, mighty boss. Yeah. Was- Less than Jake, real big fish, Dave Ferris. Um, who else? I know I'm missing. I, the blue meanies run got signed to a major label. Uh, who else? Uh, the pilfers and not everyone make it, made it. The only ones who made it were obviously the boss tones, no doubt, and Real Big Fish got mainstream mm-hmm, success, mm-hmm. and then Less Than Jake just built this crazy cult following without any like hits. Um, and those bands, especially Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish, have never stopped touring and still wow. draw you know a thousand, five hundred, two thousand people in every market, which is crazy to yeah. me. Um, but it just it died out of the mainstream, so. There was no more dollars for the major labels, but um, those bands kept touring. And then there were pockets. It's funny because when it became like taboo, all the bands that were playing ska just started changing their styles. And I just started laughing. I was like, that's <laughs> just typical. <laughs> There's, there is a, uh, there is like a nineties resurgence in indie rock. Now is that, is that uh, bringing ska back a little bit too, to, to more of like the mainstream indie rock? Well, I think it's just more anything is nostalgia. So it's yeah, like those right. people who were listening to ska in the nineties are they're not too cool anymore to admit, hey, I like yeah. suicide machines and less than Jake and Real Big Fish and I'm ready to go have a good time on uh and relive my youth. Right, right, right. So in ninety six was everything on C D back then? Yes. Okay. And uh so much of what I remember from, especially from punk in the '90s, was the compilation CDs. Was that something that you guys did? Well, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was was that like a, I, I remember um, we, you know, there's a local label here, Sonic Onion, and then and and uh, in Canada, and then there was a. We also talked with um, uh, uh, Kill Rock Stars, who were, had a huge compilation for them. What did those do for you? It exposed us to more people and exposed our bands to more people. It, mm. That was such a different era when you're thinking about uh, physical sales. I think we put we had the series called Mail Orders Fun. It was like Mail Orders 
mail order is fun. Mail order is still fun. Mail order for the masses. So we're trying to <laughs> get people to hear our different bands, but also trying to uh, get them excited about the the process of mail ordering, mm. um, which goes back to the Ian Mackay philosophy of, I remember reading him saying, I don't even care if our records are in stores, as long as you can mail order, that's distribution. Mm. Now, that. That's totally true. So let's keep pushing the idea that, yeah, as long as you can mail order from us, our records are available. Um, and so, but yeah, the, the comp CDs, I think that first comp CD we sold like close to a hundred thousand copies, which oh is just gosh. insane. Um, were they, uh, remind me, were they cheaper than like the average CD? Oh yeah. It was yeah. like, we even like put it on the artwork. Do not pay more than three ninety nine for this. Right. Okay. I remember that. Yes. And we would go on tour. Um, I still did some touring after in the like late nineties and I would just sell it and I would sell like hundreds at the show for about wow. $4. Yeah, that's which is, right. Again, it's crazy to me. And what they're that getting would never happened. Yeah, 4 or today. 5 4 or $5 and they're getting like 23 songs. Or more. Or I think more. we tried to fit a, <laughs> like fitting a, like yeah. 30 bands on these comps. Right. And and do you remember when that like that golden era of comps ended up like started to die? I do. I wish I had a more exact time frame sure i definitely remember like oh that's over oh man because everyone was doing it and um and i can't think of anyone who didn't do it every label had their own cheap sampler right and my yeah i guess probably died but it wasn't the popularity of it that died or the overexposure it was probably just the cd the death of the cd itself right the death of the physical format yeah right 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 now, let me ask you another thing about like, and and I, I really should have called up a few of my friends before talking with you, but I, I have a couple of these diehard punk friends in, and I remember in the early 2000s before the current vinyl boom that they were buying seven inch records from small punk labels in the US. And, and I, I imagine some of these people not even listening to them, but just as collector items. Was there a seven inch scene for you guys? Not from Asian Man. Okay. We we never did like a series. We had talked about doing like a single series. I yeah. think Sub Pop had one um, back in the day where every month you got a different seven inch. Okay. Just never, I, I was never able to do that. But we, we put out plentiful seven inches over the years. Yeah. And I now I like thinking about, there was this quote I heard um, from you about that says as a collector i love vinyl as a business person it's a pain in the ass is that an exaggeration or like when did you kind of get into vinyl uh i got into vinyl in high school so like early 80s 83 84 just Mm -hmm. collecting punk uh just going to the store and just anything that looked punk i just bought it so i remember buying like bands i didn't even like i I remember buying the sex pistols and just because I heard it was punk. Yeah. And then bringing it home and going, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> I liked more of the melodic punk. So I, I found myself gravitating towards like the descendants or seven seconds even. Um, because there's some melody in it. Um, um versus the what am I trying to I'm trying to think of bands from that era that were just like just like that snotty uh monotone punk. Mm, um, right. So yeah, I, I just uh but yeah, I like collecting vinyl because that was the format. Right. There was no CDs. 
it hadn't been invented yet, so we're just buying buying records. And what about from the label perspective? Because I mean, we talk a lot with labels about the boom that kind of the the you know the renaissance or whatever of, of vinyl in the two thousands. Uh, how did that impact the label? When did the label switch to twelve inch? I felt like we jumped on a pretty pretty early on. Yeah, um, I, I've had a I had a gut instinct. Everything was changing, and then so when the vinyl boom happened, we were in the thick of it. Oh man, um, that's great. One, <clears throat> one thing, so we have a shed in the backyard of my parents' home mm. that we stored a bunch of records and it was an old shed and it was like full of black widows and had some <laughs> leaks in it. But I dug through, tried to grab all the vinyl I could find. And there were all the original test pressings oh. so from like alkaline trio, uh, goddamn, or maybe I'll catch fire. And then wow. what I found out was these things, people were paying ridiculous amounts of money for it. I, uh, I think I was selling them for like, 150 each. I probably could have got way more. But oh, wow. I just, and I didn't even set the price. People are just offering it. So I was like, yeah. Oh, wow. And, that, and then I f- feel like that's when I went, okay, something's going on with vinyl. And then I just started repressing everything on, on 12 inch. Right, right. At least the records that people were still interested in. How did that, um, now I'm asking from a Canadian standpoint, but how did those records fare in the shed with the weather temperatures? Not good. I probably, <laughs> I'd say at least fifty percent of the records that were in there, I had to just I had to throw away. You had to peel off the floor. <laughs> yeah, it was. It sucked. Um, I remember, even though a lot of them were shrink wrapped, they still were damaged because it was probably at that time over ten years of just sitting in there. Because we did press vinyl on all our early records, even okay. when we started, like in the nineties. Um, yeah. And was that just uh, like a like a just a small demand of, of a small subsect of people of people interested or yeah, but still even then compared to today's market, um, people bought so much physical content even even hmm. even though CDs were the, was the predominant um, preference, we were selling vinyl so I would press like a thousand to two thousand records of a lot of our releases wow um, and. We even if they got shipped out to record stores, they all got returned. So that's why I had so many <laughs> in the shed. Right, right, right. Um, so if if um, sorry, I was just looking over my notes here. Um, you like was vinyl an issue for you? Um, like when things got busy at the plants, like why did why would you say that it was a pain in the ass from a, a business standpoint? Because it takes up so much space, right? It's, okay. The, the the people who buy vinyl are very particular about the the shape it comes in. So when you're shipping a 12 inch to Canada, Eastern Canada, yes, there's a lot of variables, yeah, involved of that thing making it without getting bent. <laughs> That's right. And it's very expensive too. So let's say you go through that whole process, it finally gets there, customer opens it up the cover's bent, they oh. want a refund or they want a new one. Like I just lost money then yeah. at that point. I've lost money. So usually in that case, if it's like overseas or even Canada, the shipping's ridiculously expensive. I know. I just tell them, I'm like, I'll just give you a refund. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get you. That's we we feel this. I mean, the same thing in Canada. Even just shipping within Canada is difficult because I mean, shipping from Toronto to Vancouver is the same as shipping from from me to you. But uh, it's um, yeah, it's brutal. Even if you're in the same country. Really? So Toronto to Vancouver is the same as shipping to California? Um, it's not the same, but it's it's definitely worse than it's not the same price uh, if I were to ship within Ontario. Like I could ship if I ship something um, locally, it would probably be about twelve or thirteen dollars. But if I were to ship to Vancouver, it would be eighteen to twenty dollars. One record? Oh yeah. Yeah, for, for one, one record in Ontario, it's twelve dollars. Oh yeah, we don't have. Oh my uh, gosh, you don't have media mail. We don't have media mail. No, and it's uh, it exceeds uh, it exceeds the size that they have. So, in fact, I think you can. Um, I've talked about this with a a, a vinyl guy, but um, ten inches. Not that anybody buys or sells ten inches, but ten inches could be shipped for much cheaper. But it's because once you've exceeded a certain size. But yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing too, and now this has gotten better with, I think it's with how heavy they're pressing vinyl, but I remember when I was getting vinyl from the US, maybe in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, they were coming and they were, I think they must've been like 130 gram or something, but like sitting out on my porch for an hour in the winter yeah. and then bringing it in, they were always warped. Oh, wow. But it's gotten a lot better now. It must yeah, 130 gram is pretty thin vinyl. Yeah, and well, I think in the I think in the early days before like people got picky, they were just excited to have the record into on 12 inches. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. If you were in your 20s now, like, would you start a label today in this in this current music business? It's hard to say. It's 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 really I I I would not be able to answer that because I'm not 20, <laughs> and I wouldn't know what it's like. I, I still meet people who are young and and starting labels who are super excited. Yeah. And so I would hope to think I'd still have that excitement. And so maybe the answer would be yes, but mm. I have no idea. I, I think it's uh I think it must be more daunting to start something in the nineties. Like I look back and and I remember in that time period that you're talking about, the CD was such a mysterious disc. And I mean, a, a lot of our friends didn't have CD burners at home in you know early days. And and I remember I, I knew one band in my whole high school. Now I was in, a, in the country, but I, one band who had recorded on and released a CD. And it was even then, it was still, the artwork was photocopied. So I what mean- What year was that? That would have been probably 96. 97 yeah okay so yeah. i didn't really now you know that's like more of a rural area but um i did not uh, like the cd was still such a mysterious thing so i imagine if if i wish i had started a label back then that would have been so much fun but um i wouldn't even known like where to find the plants i mean what was that like you know trying to make a cd back then it wasn't that hard you just we had this uh magazine called bam bear okay. music magazine and they just had adverts in there and you just be like, <laughs> press a thousand CDs. And well, so we call the number and they're like, this is what you need to do. And how expensive was that? Like, I, feel like, I feel like it was pretty, it was way more expensive then than it is now. To do uh, CDs. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, the inflation has gone down versus right. going up. Right. Uh, gosh, I feel like it was maybe even like for a thousand CDs, 
up to like three thousand dollars. Oh my god! Whereas now you can get a thousand CDs for nine hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Oh man, that's pretty daunting. I mean, that's a daunting investment. Yeah. And was that hundred percent? Yeah. <laughs> and what would they like? What could you sell them for at shows? I sold them for ten dollars. Wow. Yeah. That's really surprising. Yeah. That's very nice of you. Yeah, I'm sure we could have sold it for more, but we were. I was again going to that Ian Mackay philosophy of cheap prices. Yeah, no, so, I think that's great. That's what I was going for. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. Like, I know we did, we did our first CD in '91, and then at a record release, I think we sold like over 300 CDs. So, oh man, we had broken even on that just on the record release show. on the release party. Oh, yeah. that's so great. We were we were very excited. Uh, you know, uh, I think that like selling a CD for ten bucks back then would would have probably been pretty ill advised. But um, you know, everybody else who is selling them for twenty five has a garage full of them. So I would much rather wow, people, have, were, people were selling them for twenty five. That's crazy. Well, I think the average CD. Um, and now again, this is from a Canadian perspective, where some of them was were maybe imports. But um, you know. Uh, Twenty dollars was would definitely be the average of a CD, I think, in the late nineties for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So, uh, it's, if we're talking Canadian, yeah, yeah, I can but, see that. Yeah, so I think ten dollars. I just think that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's kind of you're talking about inflation. I mean, that's what CDs were at the end. You know, by the time Best Buy was killing them, they were selling them for eight ninety nine and nine ninety nine. That's right. So you were ahead that's of the right. curve. <laughs> I asked a bunch of, I want to ask you, I asked a bunch of labels recently what kind of challenges that they face. And, and, I'm, and I'm talking about, you know, um, small and up and coming labels. And, and the majority of the responses I got were around the issue of marketing and how to get music heard and how to stand out on new release Friday. Have you cracked that code? Do you have like a, a marketing strategy that you stick to for every release? No, we do nothing. <laughs> My my marketing strategy is to do nothing. Honestly, <laughs> really, we do nothing. We have no. And I tell the band straight up, I say, I'm not going to do nothing for you. <laughs> That's great. I, in a lot of cases, I try to talk them out of putting their record out with me <laughs> because I'm not going to do anything. Oh man! And but it's. But that's a, but, so. <laughs> that's so, yeah, your so strategy. I, that's my strategy, and after. <laughs> After telling them all this, if they're still interested, I'm like, okay, well, they have nothing to complain about if yeah, after I tell them. And usually I'll even like like email them like a, kind of just like a, I don't know, a quick like a tidbit of what, what we talked about on the phone just so that I could go back to it if they ever complain. <laughs> and it, it never happens. I mean, it's happened a couple of times and then yeah. I'll go, you know. This is not what I do. This it's it's such a different label. We don't. I just don't care. I've never done like sound scans or like mm. trying to get on the Billboard charts. Like I could care less. Wow, but you've had records that, you know, have been very successful. Yeah, I think that's where the misconception comes from in terms of the the size of the label. Right. I think people are very surprised that we have no staff. Yeah. Um, it's because we've we've released. A ton of records that did really well, and and uh, I just yeah, but I, I find that interesting. And I mean, so when you're talking about a marketing, and I, and I get that, but 
the 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 artists are getting heard because of the name because of the history of the label is that what you think it, the ones that are lucky yes right <laughs> <laughs> like uh, i mean a lot of them flop and that's just the way it goes it it really it really lies on the band's shoulders in terms of getting their name out and that's touring mm Without touring extensively, it's really hard. Right. And every so often, it just kind of happens, and I, I'm, I'm not, and I don't know why. I, I've never known why band A does b- better than band B. Right. Yeah. Like I could listen to, let's let's say like Alkaline Trio, for example, which was a very successful band. But sure. why did they not get to that next level? I see. You're saying like like today, like, like why are they? Yeah, not, why, well, yeah. why did they not get like as big as like a Rise Against? Right. Like, w- I just never understood why Band A got better, th- bigger than Band sure. B. Yeah. And nothing really made sense to me. So you're signing, okay, but ultimately you boil every record down that you release, and you're you are just a big fan of it. Is that the thing? You're you just love the record. You don't care what people think of it. That and also, I mean, a lot. I've put out records I don't even like, but I like the people. Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of it comes down to character. I want to work with people who are active. In yeah. like the DIY scene, um, people who are rooting for other bands and not about what can what can we do for ourselves. It's I like seeing bands that put on shows um, in their community uh, are part of like house show circuits uh, and are constantly helping touring bands, giving all the money to touring bands mm-hmm. when they're it's a local show. I like that idea of community right. over profit, and so that's what I'm looking for: bands that are are there at shows watching other bands and not just, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get it. Do you have, uh, do you have a lot of demos that come in? Uh, every day. So yeah. n- physical demos, no more, but it's all just, I get these, I, I, I wish I could share you some of these emails. <laughs> it's just, it's funny to read. It's like, I feel like a lot of them are, are really, expecting me to put out their record yeah what stand Um, does anything ever stand out to you like do you ever find something in there i I don't think i've ever released something just from a oh wow it's always been word of mouth so my advice always to bands is build build something yeah they'll come to you you don't go to them right they will come to you if you can create a buzz labels will be knocking on your door and that's always been the case well, even, I mean, even like having one of the labels on your roster speak on the behalf of a unsigned band would be better than just them cold emailing you. 100%. Yeah. That's what, that's what happens. A band will, that I'm friends with will go, you got to check out this band. Mm. And then I will check it out because I, I trust them. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking about some of the, the modern bands, uh, what's the story with Joyce Manor? I, I love that band so much. I love their discography. I love how prolific they are. Um, I remember they did something with 6131 and then Epitaph. Like, um, What's their connection with Asian Man? So I played a solo show, I think in 2005 in San Pedro, California. It was a DIY show over a cliff. San Pedro is a... Uh, beach town, okay, like a working class beach town. So they do these. There's a place called Sunken City that, uh, if you watch the Big Lebowski, a lot of that's okay, in San Pedro. And they just pulled a generator. We did a show off a cliff. 
uh, it was me, Matt, and Kim. Wow. Toys to kill. And I needed to go <laughs> to the airport, and I just asked, hey, can anyone take me to the airport? And this one <laughs> young guy said, oh, I can do it. <laughs> and then uh, he took me to the airport, and he played me his band's demo. I didn't think anything of it. Oh, he played you the demo in the car? Yeah. It Aww. was the singer for Joyce Manor, but before oh, Joyce Manor exis- existed. Okay. And then... Oh and then gosh. a few years later, Joyce Manor was playing a show in San Jose, and I went to it. Um, and the singer came up to me and told me, do you remember the show? That was me that brought you to the airport. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and that's how we started talking. And then uh, they had already built a buzz. They they had released their self-titled record on 6131. Okay. And then um, he just asked me, he's like, would you be interested in putting out our next record? I'm like, yeah. Wow. No, it was easy as that. And then and they did uh, they did a full length with you, a full length that was clocking in at I think twelve minutes long. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, their oh their gosh. songs are so short, yeah, especially totally. their first two records. So you released their re released their self titled. Yes. Oh, that's a great record. That's a great record. I mean, they're oh, yeah. all great. Very lucky. Yeah. Very lucky to get that record because I think that's their that's their hit record. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I think I probably came into them when they um, for never hung over again. That was probably like the first time a lot of people heard about them. Probably because that was like I think that was their That's first fast. epitaph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that your demo policy is you have somebody has to drive you to the airport. Yes, and, and they'll get yeah, signed. Okay. You'll get signed. That's for- a, it's <laughs> funny. Like in the industry, you hear some stories that are just so cliche. Like they're kind of like almost like they were written by a a, a Hollywood screenwriter. Right. That a kid drives you to the airport, plays you the demo in his car. That's funny. But I didn't remember. I didn't, I I don't remember the the music at all. I I, if it, I don't remember it being good at least. I went, but it it wouldn't have been like it wouldn't have been their self titled. You don't think? No, this no. is. It was a different band. I can't oh, remember okay. the name of the band, but um, <laughs> but that's how at least we started talking. Right, right. He brought Barry brought that up. Like, do you remember this? And I said yes. And oh gosh, yeah. that's amazing. Our friendship started there. Uh, were there any bands over the years that you missed out on or re- or regret not signing when you had a chance? Yeah, I don't know if it would have come to fruition, but I had seen at the drive-in play. Okay. They, they played in Long Beach, California. They opened up for Man or Astro Man. Okay. So they, I'm trying to think, maybe 40 people at the show, but they were playing like they were playing in front of 100,000. It was the most intense live thing I'd ever seen in wow. a long time, at least. And I, I, their manager at the time was this guy named Blaze. And he gave me a couple of their early releases, a couple of EPs. And he said, you know, we're looking for a label, you know, mm. if Asian man would be interested, that'd be cool. Yeah. And I remember listening to the the music and I just didn't like it. <laughs> and so I passed on it. And I don't know if they would have accepted, but I just, that was one where I was like, you always go with live show over. Oh, really? over music because you can't replicate a live show. You can have be a shitty band and put out a good record. Yeah, because, that's true. Yeah. Especially you can't today. Be a, a great live band. You that's can't fake that. 
Oh man, that's interesting. Hey, what did you guys do with Five Iron Frenzy? I saw that on Wikipedia. I used to have, I had one of their CDs back in the day. Yeah, we didn't, we, we only we put a seven inch out. That was it. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it was like, uh, what was it called? Miniature golf, something adventures in miniature golf. Oh, okay. Thing. That's interesting. I, I imagine there's bands who like feel like it's almost like a, uh, an honor, like a rite of passage to release something with Asian man. I feel like at some point in their career. Do you, do, you, do you ever feel uh, that? Yeah. And I've been told that. that yeah. <laughs> Are you okay with that? Day. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. It makes it so much easier now. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what's something interesting is I, I, I heard from other labels that have been around for a while that a strong, like eventually a strong back catalog can really help sustain a label financially. Is that true? Like does the success? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And it does it allow you to take chances on, on new things. Yes. Really? <laughs> I would make so much more money if I just stopped putting out records and just <laughs> sold the back catalog. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, uh, but that's what I do. I keep taking chances and putting out new bands and, uh, I lose a lot, I lose a lot on them, but that's okay because I'm still doing well from the back catalog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you just, uh, I think that's, that's great, why you, you're doing the label. At least that's the reason I'm doing it is like, I'm trying to help bands. Um, whether it does or not is another, <laughs> another yeah. discussion, but at least, uh, I'm trying and it's, it's something that's still fun. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I mean, I know there's been a little bit of talk about the, the, uh, the longevity of owning the masters. Like that's kind of a bit of a hot topic right now in the industry, but, um, I think there is kind of a beautiful thing about some of these artists from even from the nineties who are in a way supporting the next generation. I think that's a really yeah. cool thing. Yeah. I, it's, it's very cool, but also very sad when you see labels disintegrate. I think when lookout records went under, it was such a shock that, it happened or how, how they could let it happen when you have a catalog that includes two green day records, operation Ivy mm. screeching weasel catalog, queers catalog, Mr. T catalog, avail. Um, it was just insane. Yeah. For that to crumble because they didn't pay their artists is sucks. And then same with no idea records. What a staple in punk and it's gone. It's gone. And where do the, when you say gone, where do the masters go? Like are they, they, they bought by someone else through like a bankruptcy thing or, I'm not sure with Lookout. I think Lookout just gave their masters back to everybody. Okay, that's yeah. great. And I think I don't know what No Idea is doing, but um, I'm sure they're doing what they have to do, whatever the bands are demanding. But it just—I yeah. think more than anything, it's just sad. Like I feel like those two labels are so instrumental in punk, in the history of punk, and for them to fold because of monetary reasons, mm -hmm. and, and the monetary reasons are because they mishandled their funds. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, um, but that's, uh, that just seems to be a common thread when you, definitely, uh, definitely. <laughs> when, you, when I talk to bands, the only thing I offer bands is clear accounting. Mm. I've never missed an accounting session. Wow. In 24 years. Wow. I used to do it monthly, which is insane. Wow. Monthly and, accounting. Wow. But now I do a quarterly. Quarterly. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Well, that yeah, that's a good thing. I've I've heard that the the licensing and the masters and the the, the lost masters is a big issue for bands from from 
your, you know, from the '90s and early 2000s, who are looking to to now press on vinyl for the first time, they don't know who owns the rights to their music. They don't know where even the recordings are. You know, yeah, that's got to be that's got to suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, especially I mean, some of these bands like like you know, punk punk artists were a little bit more prolific than other bands, and they might have a. 10 or 15 records and you know half are with this label that no longer exists half is with this label that's owned by at&t or whatever exactly exactly yeah that's interesting that's brutal uh, I, you know thinking about another cool thing i remember i want to ask you about this when we were talking with sub pop and i and i've brought this up on the show a lot because i think it's such a really cool thing but every year there's like a new batch of teenagers who are discovering nirvana for the very first time or they're discovering you know alkaline trio or no effects and or, or just a genre entirely um have you seen this reality play out where they're basically like <laughs> we're we're creating new teenagers every year who can discover the back catalog oh yeah that's the gift that keeps giving <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. when you have a classic punk record or any record yeah you know, whether it be the beatles or uh aretha franklin it's just gonna it's if you put out a good record it's gonna sell forever are you ever tempted to to you know reissue the the crap out of some of these successful records or to 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 milk the fans oh i have (laughs) (laughs) i have yeah that's great i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it because i'm a fan and i buy that kind of i love that stuff if there's a demand usually it's not the stuff that's out of print there's not a huge demand so it's usually I'll only press like 300 to 500, but, um, Oh, that's great. I, I, the hope is that they will sell. And a lot of times it doesn't, I'll sell half of it and then I'm stuck with a couple hundred records. Yeah. But, um, I, uh, yeah, I like, I, I like reissuing the back catalog and it's, uh, it's fun for everybody. It's fun for the fans. It's fun for the artists to see their stuff on wax. If we never mm-hmm. put it out in the oh, first sure. place. Yeah. Vinyl. Have you ever done, I mean, going back to that compilation, have you done a, a 12 inch vinyl compilation? I have, but not, not any of the reissues of those comps because they're just too long. Yeah. We've okay. done, we did a series called Asian man music for Asian man people, which is kind of, it's a little parody on rap music for rap people from oh. the eighties. Okay. Comps. But, uh, it's just, in our case, we just had Asian man bands covering asian man bands oh that's cool that's and nice so um it's uh those are those are fun and yeah I think, I th- and we just did it we did it for our record club and i made like a small amount uh, available to the public so those are really um hard to get mm. are are i mean i i'm sure you've got some things working on that you can't share yet but is there is there releases planned for the 25th or, or some sort of celebration like that you know, to be honest, no. I, I did a 15-year one, which was massive. Yeah. It's very stressful because I'm not good at hiring people. I try to do everything myself. Right. Um, so I tried to t- – then I did the 20-year and my process was, okay, I got to make it easier, <laughs> simpler, get more people to help me. And then that one was stressful too. Oh, man. Like to the point of – insomnia like i didn't sleep oh shoot there was a good like 50 hours of no sleep and i don't want to do that again so just i don't sp- think i'm gonna do a 25 just a spotify playlist yes i'll do uh <laughs> i'll make a i'll make a 
a post on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you for 25. Oh, that's great. Listen, I love I love your ethos so much. I, and I loved getting the kind of deep dive in a little bit into your history. And um, it's such a cool thing. And I know our listeners are, are going to love to hear you talk and, and to hear a little bit about the label. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Um, you can find out more about Asian Man Records at asianmanrecords.com. And you can also get a copy of our free guide for independent record labels. If you are in the process, I know a lot of our listeners, not because I've received emails from them, but a lot of our listeners are, are haven't yet started a record label, are thinking about doing it, are inspired by some of these conversations to start a record label. Well, go to otherrecordlabels.com and we have a free guide that you can download there that will give uh, existing labels and soon-to-be labels some advice from our previous guests on uh, navigating the challenges uh, of running a record label. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>